Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors. ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, now part of Networks, where you use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And of course, also brought to you by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. So hold on to your butts, everybody. It was a wild week. I think the biggest story this week was the news that Okta had what has been called a limited hack. The CISO at Okta released a statement reassuring customers that no corrective action was required by them and that the event in question was that an employee for a company called Cytel that Okta outsources some customer support work to had their machine compromised and this employee was logged into their Okta account at the time exposing what was available in Okta to the hacker from roughly around January 16th through January 21st, when Okta identified what was going on and disabled that individual's account. The point has been made by Okta that they operate with least privileged access, so what the hacker had access to would have been quite limited, but the embarrassment in this case was that screenshots were released by the cyber gang involved, who are called Lapsus. The event occurred back in January, as stated, and Okta claimed the outsourced company only sent them a summary report of the incident on March 17th, with the full report only being delivered to Okta just hours after Lapsus shared the screenshots. So essentially this went viral before Okta had their hands on the report into the incident. On a call on Wednesday, Okta stated 366 customers were affected by this breach, and that is about 2.5% of the total Okta customer base. Though Zim Ketter clarifies that this number is the customers whose Okta garbled word was accessed by Cytel during that period. But Okta says they determined no corrective actions need to be taken for those customers, though they did confirm that they will be reaching out to the customers who have been affected. In this case, there was definitely initial panic when the screenshots leaked, and unfortunately, Okta were a little slow to issue a reaffirming statement. But to take them at their word, they didn't have the full details themselves until hours after the screenshots already went viral. It sounds like a bad week for Okta, but also a really bad week for Cytel. To bring this back a little bit now, I reported on a previous episode of the podcast about an NVIDIA breach. Well, wouldn't you know it, the culprits in that breach are the very same Lapsus gang that hit Okta. If you weren't aware of this, it is worth noting again that according to bleepycomputer.com, it appears that NVIDIA's code signing certificates are being used to sign malware to appear trustworthy and allow malicious drivers to be loaded into Windows. I noticed this week though that the certificates in question have now been revoked, so perhaps part of the threat from that hack has been mitigated. And because misery loves company, this time that company happens to be Microsoft. 
who this week also acknowledged they were hit by the very same group. The gang posted a screenshot of their Telegram channel indicating that they hacked Microsoft's Azure DevOps server containing source code for Bing, Cortana, and various other internal projects. Monday night, the hacking group posted a torrent for a 9 gigabit 7-zip archive containing the source code for over 250 projects that they say belong to Microsoft. VPcomputer.com reports that when posting the torrent, Lapsus said it contained 90% of the source code for Bing and approximately 45% of the code for Bing Maps and Cortana. For their part, Microsoft stated, quote, Our investigation has found a single account has been compromised, granting limited access. Our cybersecurity response teams quickly engaged to remediate the compromised account and prevent further activity, end quote. They also reaffirmed what they have claimed in the past, that is, that they do not rely on code secrecy as a security measure. So essentially, even if they got the source code, this should not be compromising to Microsoft customers or Microsoft themselves, hopefully. Interestingly, in the case of these lapsus attacks, it has been suggested that social engineering is involved and even the possibility that they are paying corporate insiders to gain access. I guess why work hard, just work smart. Hit people up on LinkedIn, maybe message them and say, hey, do you want to make some money? Give us your credentials. I guess that works too. There's also been suggestions from Krebs on security that the attack on Okta and Microsoft was run by a 17-year-old from the UK who recently bought the Doxbin doxing website and then leaked its database. I would guess probably next week there's going to be further clarification on all of this. So it'll be interesting to read. But there have been several other large companies who have also announced that they've been attacked, including the likes of Samsung, Ubisoft, and more. And Krebs on Security again suggested the Electronic Arts, our EA breach, may have been from a member of Lapsus too. So it'll be really interesting to see how this develops further. And in a week when the U.S. government warned of heightened risk of cyber attacks, unfortunately, there were plenty more stories of organizations announcing they have been attacked, including the Scottish Association for Mental Health, whose email and phone systems were taken down. Their chief executive, Billy Watson, stated, quote, We are devastated by this attack. It is difficult to understand why anyone would deliberately try to disrupt the work of an organization that is relied on by people at their most vulnerable. Our priority is to continue to do everything we can to deliver our vital services, end quote. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you may remember I covered an attack on a mental health service in Finland some time ago where very sensitive client information, including session notes, were taken during the attack. I can only hope this is not the same in this case. I know there is kind of an unwritten rule with cyber gangs to not hit hospitals, but that doesn't seem to have been adhered to widely in recent history. I feel like it is only right that mental health facilities also be left alone, but I guess criminals don't tend to care about their victims, so I guess what can we expect? There has also been reports of a backdoor malware named Serpent, which reportedly infiltrated French government agencies and large construction firms. This one relies on phishing and gets kicked off with a macro running in a Word document that executes PowerShell. This uses Chocolatey then to install Python, 
in order to execute a further script with the end result being a backdoor for the gang to view and access systems in the organizations. SleepyComputer.com reports that this is potentially a new threat actor, and while the goal of the unknown adversary hasn't been determined yet, it appears that the tactics point towards espionage, with data access, host control, and the installation of additional payloads being the main pillars of the attacks. So this particular attack has several layers to consider. Obviously better training for users so they don't fall for phishing, but that is easier said than done. Obviously greater restriction on macros since they seem to be heavily utilized in these types of phishing attacks. Limiting who can get admin access and using least privilege management with products like PolicyPack, for example, could help here. Possibly limiting the accounts and contexts that could be used for installing via Chocolatey. And I would think in most enterprise organizations, having Python on non-developer and IT workstations is pretty unlikely. So detecting something out of the ordinary like that could help too. This could make the argument for greater control over application packaging and deployment of applications again, so that there's no user or admin initiated installs occurring on any devices in an enterprise. But that may be splitting hairs at this point. I'm pretty sure at least most large financial organizations have never steered towards using things like auto updates from vendors and allowing field techs to do manual installs on machines with vendor installs. So that could be something for other organizations to also consider doing. I noticed an interesting article on the Microsoft tech community this week on Internet Explorer 11 retirement and what does this mean for Microsoft Access apps. I guess the good news is that it reads that it won't have any impact at all really, but it looks like a new browser control feature is on the horizon and the current MS HTML engine will not be supported as of 2029. If your organization happens to use a lot of access applications, perhaps as front ends, which I know some do, there is no need to panic right now, but you should likely start having conversation this year or next year on having a plan to move over to the next browser control feature. Microsoft have announced they intend to build a new data center region in Southern Finland. They say to support customer needs for high availability and resilience, the new data center region will feature Azure availability zones, unique physical locations equipped with independent power, networking, and cooling for additional tolerance to data center failures, and it will join Microsoft's worldwide network of cloud computing infrastructure of more than 60 regions, over 280,000 kilometers of terrestrial and subsea fiber, and over 190 edge sites. With the just-released 22.03 version of Microsoft Endpoint Manager, the policy reporting experience has a new reporting framework that allows you to view a report on a device to see what policies are applying. You can quickly check policy assignments, uh, see a success, error, and conflict report for policies in your environment, and more. So policy management is a big blind spot right now for modern environments that are maybe using Microsoft Endpoint Manager, perhaps using Azure Active Directory. And stay tuned for the weekly webinar announcement because we'll be talking about that topic at the weekly webinar. Well, I figured I was going to go long on InfoSec stories this week, and I know not everyone likes them. So as a bit of a palate cleanser for all, I wanted to end with a nice story. Now, this one isn't really enterprise IT related at all, but it is a little techy. 
Over the weekend, I read an old Boston Globe article in which the author of the article was telling of how he was reporting on a story about a teenager setting a world record for speed playing the original Super Mario Bros. game for Nintendo. While doing the story and doing general research on video game records, the author of the article was speaking with a gaming referee from Canada, and he just happened to mention, kind of in passing to the ref, that he and his wife own an original Game Boy with Tetris, which was the only game that came with the console when it was bought and remained the only game they had for it, so clearly not gamers. He told this referee that his wife can clear over 600 lines on Tetris, and the response was, oh my. Which got the author of the article thinking, and he did a little research and discovered that the record at the time for Tetris was 327 lines, so much less than his wife's usual 600 lines when she played. So his wife started doing Tetris training, and they devised a plan for her to do an official world record attempt. During her attempt, she cleared 841 lines and obliterated the previous record. The article is fantastic. It sets the scene really nicely. It describes like she's doing it in kind of like an arcade environment with people around and cameras and stuff like that. Talking about her nerves. It's a really great read. And I'll share a link to that if you want to read it for yourself. And I'll share that link on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for this episode, which is episode 222. And now a weekly webinar. On Thursday, March 31st at 10 a.m. Pacific or 1 p.m. Eastern, which I believe is 6 p.m. GMT, 7 p.m. Central European time, Jeremy Moskowitz and I will be going into migrating native group policy objects to Microsoft Intune. So I covered this topic a little bit during my Policy Pack Lockdown 2022 session, and that was kind of a good preamble to this actual webinar. So I'll be teeing things up at the beginning, I believe, and then Jeremy's going to rock your socks off by doing some really in-depth, deep dive into migrating these native group policy objects. So it's definitely a topic that a lot of people seem to care about because, as I said during the news, it seems to be a bit of a black hole at the moment or a blind spot for modern workspace or just modern desktop management. So... This is one you won't want to miss, and I'll share a link to the registration with this episode. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. This week, Daniel Ratliff, with a shout out to Cody Mathis on Twitter, shared a PowerShell module that provides the ability to simply run a PowerShell commandlet invoke-command-as and then use the parameter dash as system to execute commands in the system context, which Daniel says has totally replaced all of his usage of the psexec dash s. So this could be kind of cool because I know that psexec has been used by cyber gangs too. So possibly eliminating that while also having the ability to run commands in system context. Like for example, I used to test installing software and system context and then testing as a regular user to make sure that there's no like active setup going on or anything funky so very cool thank you for sharing that travis roberts published a video 
of using the snapimage.ps1 PowerShell script, a script that automates the process of creating an image from an Azure VM without destroying it during the capture process. He says at a high level, these following steps are taken during the video. A snapshot of a source reference VM, create a temp capture resource group, creating an OS disk from snapshot, create a VNet and VM in the capture RG, resource group I'm assuming, assist prep the VM with a custom script extension, capture the VM, if using Azure Compute Gallery, add image to the gallery, if not using the gallery, add image to the reference VM resource group, then remove capture resource group and remove the snapshot. So even if you're not using Azure right now, you may need to do it in the future. So it's probably a good one just to verse yourself in some techniques for doing the image management and image maintenance within Azure. And just a word of warning to those who maybe use Citrix PVS or something like that. I find the Azure VM image management and even the Azure Virtual Desktop image management a little clunky in comparison. So it's kind of like a throwback to uh, how I used to do it with like WDS and um, just like physical machine imaging, which is kind of a pain in the butt. Just my opinion, but <laughs> hey, there's obviously people who are more used to that than other methods. So to each their own. But finally, Brooks Pepin also shared a great blog post on 10 things you need to know about hybrid Azure AD join and Intune. This is a lengthy post, but is one you'll definitely want to check out if you work with Azure AD, Microsoft Endpoint Configuration Manager, and Microsoft Endpoint Manager or Intune. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening.